Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, everyone. Aaron Jones here from the Wilson Center. We're talking to our friend Abe Denmark, who is the Vice President of Programs and Director of Studies at the Wilson Center and also an Asia expert, formerly our Asia Program Director, and we've talked to him several times on the podcast. Thanks for joining us again, Abe. Great to see you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always great to talk to you, uh, and I really want to ground truth on a relationship here. We've been doing these relationships and rivalries, this little mini-series that we're doing, and I think an obvious one to discuss is the relationship between China and Taiwan. Um, I think, you know, this is one that, that pops up from time to time. Sometimes this, the issue seems to go dormant for quite a while, but it has popped up again in the news. And I think it's probably good to do some background on this and understand a little bit of how we got to this situation and why we should care about it. So uh, I guess give us a quick overview of the background here. Uh, this this goes back to, I guess, the 40s um, and uh, post-World War II and Chinese Communist Party versus nationalists. But I'll let you give it a go there for uh, a quick roundup on that. Sure. Um, so it actually, as with most things, it goes back further than that. And really any effort at describing the history of any relationship is going to be an overview, but a... a Unf particularly in Asia, right? Because you're talking about thousands of years of history. Right. And it's, um, and uh, memories run long in every part of the world, including in East Asia. Um, the extremely short version uh, of this particular issue actually goes back to the um, 1600s, the 1680s, really, when um, the Taiwan was formally placed under the rule of the Qing dynasty. Um, in China. Um, before that, um, Taiwan had been somewhat uh, separate from China. There had been, of course, some uh, Chinese um, uh, not Chinese people who moved in there, but it was primarily uh, settled by, um, by uh, local people, uh, Aboriginal people um, that are more, uh, uh, more Pacific Islander than um, mainland Chinese. Um, but in the, the Qing dynasty took over in the 1680s. Um, and after Japan um, became more militarized in the late 19th century, eventually Japan uh, took Taiwan as part of a settlement for the, for, uh, the Sino-Japanese War, uh, the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895 when uh, China signed over uh, Taiwan to Japan's rule, which uh, Japan ruled Taiwan from then, from 1895 until the end of the Second World War in 1945. Um, during that time, in the the late um, in the 1930s into the 1940s, China had been uh, both uh, taken over parts of it by the Japanese, but also had been embroiled in a civil war uh, between the nationalists and the communists. Uh, the nationalists being led by Chiang Kai-shek, the 
communist by Mao Zedong. Um, they put their civil war to the side uh, uh, to fight the Japanese, um, although the nationalists did the majority of the actual fighting of the Japanese. Um, but as soon as the war ended, uh, pretty soon after the end of the war against Japan, the civil war started up again. And in 1949, the communists uh, won. They uh, conquered mainland China, and the nationalists were forced to flee to Taiwan. Uh, and that is the root of the current separation between China and Taiwan. Uh, both sides claim to be sovereign governments of all of China. Um, and there's formally no uh, no claim that Taiwan is a separate country from, uh, from China, um, although the current government in Taiwan recognizes that as a de facto separation from China that they control their own uh, they control their own future they have their own government their own political system their own ec economic system that's distinct and different from uh, the Chinese now starting in uh, right after the war the United States recognized the nationalist Chiang Kai-shek uh, as the legitimate government of China um, this was um, uh, intensified as the Cold War uh, grew we continue to recognize the nationalists as the only legitimate government of all of China, even, after, even if they're only controlling Taiwan, uh, through the 1970s, uh, after which point, we, as a result of uh, Henry Kissinger's diplomacy, Nixon's diplomacy, eventually the United States shifted recognition from Taiwan to China, uh, now having a one-China policy, seeing uh, Beijing as the government of China, and having ambiguous policy when it comes to Taiwan. Um, what we say is that China has its one China China principle, uh, claiming all of uh, China, including Taiwan, is as uh, what they control. The United States recognizing that that's their position, um, but maintaining our own ambiguity about Taiwan's official status. Um, we have an unofficial relationship with Taiwan. We have a un, uh, unofficial embassy there. They have an unofficial embassy here. We provide them with um, military support. Um, we have a robust trade relationship, a robust uh, cultural relationship with them, but no formal diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. Our diplomatic relationship is with China and Beijing. That's the short version. Well, it's a very good short version. Uh, it sounds like you've had to do this before. So uh, I wonder then, in the most recent iteration, uh, there's talk of problems between China and Taiwan and whether or not the U.S. will be dragged into it uh, or what the U.S. stand would be uh, when it comes to that. This seems to pop up pretty often. I mean, every few years or so, it seems like you we you see these kinds of headlines. What, what, is, what does all this mean for what's going on right now? Well, this has been a the perpetual issue in the U.S.-China relationship um, since the end of the Second World War. Um, the United States was actually an ally of Taiwan while we recognized it. Um, there's actually, it was, it was a treaty, the U.S.-China uh, uh, treaty, the U.S.-China alliance, even though it only applied to Taiwan. Um, and that was what was abrogated as part of our uh, shift of recognition to, uh, to mainland China. Um, the, the fundamental of the actual controversy between China and Taiwan is over who who is the legitimate government of China. Uh, Beijing claims that it is the legitimate government of all of China, including Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan officially in its constitution 
claim sovereignty all over all of China, but there is a significant movement inside Taiwan um, to break away and declare independence and say they are the government of Taiwan, to not have claims over any other part of China, and just say that they are the Republic of Taiwan, Republic of China, whatever it may be, That, but sort of trying to um, change that claim. This is not their official policy, um, but the pro-independence movement um, has taken on greater uh, significance, not so much as a need to formal de- formally declare independence, but rather as a reflection of the realities on the ground that most people who live in Taiwan uh, see themselves as Taiwanese, um, not Chinese. Um, they have been electing their own uh, representatives for uh, a few decades now. And the assumptions of democratic governance of capitalist economy, of a pluralistic society, are baked into Taiwan right now. They're a very robust market economy, a very lively and robust democracy. Um, and there's very little interest in uh, rejoining um, China, very, uh, in becoming part of the People's Republic of China. Um, the other piece, and what's made things more intense recently, has been um, uh, both the growing... Uh, sense that Taiwan is um, separate in everything but name from China, um, but also what China has done with Hong Kong. Um, now, Hong Kong um, had been a, um, a colony of the British, had returned to uh, Beijing's control in the late 1990s, um, and Beijing had always described their vision of Hong Kong as what they called one country, two systems, in that their proposal was that Hong Kong would be part of China officially, would be controlled by Beijing, but Beijing would allow it to retain its unique political and economic identity, and that Beijing would not interfere with Hong Kong. Now, we saw recently that those promises had little to no value, and Beijing, when they decided to move, they moved. The reason this applies to Taiwan is that Beijing had been making almost exactly the same promises as it comes to Taiwan, saying that it would be one country to two systems, that Taiwan could retain its own political identity, its own economic system, that it would just be under the PRC's flag, but otherwise be able to retain its own systems. Um, and it was a little bit, a new, there were some nuanced differences with its vision from Hong Kong, but that was the basics of it. Um, and the people in Taiwan saw what happened to Hong Kong, and there is very little faith that the PRC would abide by its word, and for good reason. So that is part of it. The other piece of it, and I'm sorry this is going on a bit long, the other piece of it is that uh, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is increasingly ambitious and is trying to establish himself as the most important leader in uh, modern Chinese history after Mao Zedong. Um, And part of that, he sees unification with Taiwan, or as he would say, reunification with Taiwan, as being essential to his legacy into uh, China achieving what he refers to as the dream of national rejuvenation. And so there's a political, a domestic political aspect to this, not just the history, not just the the politics of which flag do you salute, um, but there's also hardcore domestic politics that plays into this. And with the domestic politics, you mentioned the Taiwanese, they have... Uh, they've been electing their own representatives. They have a, a presidential system, right? And they have a representative, a representative government. Uh, so when you have presidential elections, a lot of times this 
comes up within a Taiwanese presidential election. Like, where do you stand vis-a-vis the mainland and Beijing? So it would seem that whenever they have these movements, they would have an opportunity every few years, essentially, to reiterate their stance on wanting to be separate. So where would you say it stands as far as, you know, the average guy on the street and where he wants to, whether he wants to be a separate independent republic, as you said, or joining with the mainland? Because I'm sure there's a lot of business going back and forth with the mainland. So it would it would be bad to be cut off. Right. But I wonder what the actual tally would be. No, and no, that's a great question. And the answer, of course, is that it's complicated. Um, in Taiwan politics, like most democracies, um, yes, this is a critical issue that is debated in every election. Um, but at the same time, uh, the issues that are foremost on the people's minds are what we recognize in any democracy. Uh, economic performance, jobs, um, uh, questions of uh, equality and justice, um, and those regular issues. It's just the, there's an overlay of Taiwan status as part of this uh, system as part of these other these other issues. Now, um, several years ago, China tried to um, be more attractive to Taiwan by greatly enhancing tourism and greatly enhancing economic engagement with Taiwan. Um, and um, the economic ties between Taiwan and the mainland really boomed. Um, but um, counter to what Beijing had hoped, this has not translated into. Uh, feelings of brotherly camaraderie um, or feelings of identifying with the PRC. Um, in fact, most polling, and this has been quite consistent over several years, most polling in Taiwan has been generally acceptant of the status quo. Um, there, Interestingly, you come to some countries where there's a lot of resentment about the international system and their lack of recognition. Um, in Taiwan, there's generally people are happy with how things are. They're happy with the ambiguity. There's most polling, you'd say, some folks would say that eventually they would like to see Taiwan unify with China. Some folks would say eventually they'd like to see Taiwan become independent, but the vast majority of people are um, okay with the current ambiguous status quo for uh, a a good deal, a a good long amount of time, um, either resolving it at some point or not at all. Um, the the question the there's a few hardliners on both parties that want to see unification that want to see independence but the vast majority of people in Taiwan just want to live their lives you know they just want to exist they just want to have their society they like being in a democracy they like having an economy they're you know they're focusing on their jobs and their families and um, these questions they just these questions are more theoretical. Than, than most, and they just want things to continue so that they can keep living their lives. And that's that's the reality of the of most people in Taiwan. All right, well, if we move beyond the theoretical, do you think that there would be a conflict, you know, unstoppable force versus immovable object? If you have hardliners in, on each side, if you have an increasingly ambitious President Xi, then is it possible that we could see conflict between China and Taiwan, or is that just sort of a bugaboo that that sells newspapers? It's absolutely possible. Um, China has been rapidly improving its military capabilities over the last several years, and uh, Taiwan is the number one priority for China's military, for the the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. 
that is the number one mission of the PLA is to be able to unify uh, with Taiwan um, by force if necessary. And mainland China has never um, uh, declared that it would that it would not be willing to use force. It has always kept force as an option. Um, but they're facing two questions. Um, one is uh, the military piece. Are they capable of unifying uh, with with Taiwan? Are they capable of using force to unify successfully? Um, that becomes much more difficult if the United States comes to Taiwan's defense. Um, and so uh, that's an open question. The second question is political for, for Beijing, for, for Xi Jinping. Uh, the decision to use force against Taiwan is an existential decision. It's a huge gamble in that if he uh, uses force and succeeds, he is the hero of the Chinese Communist Party and will forever be remembered as that. If he fails, the Chinese Communist Party may fall. And so stakes like that lead to a, a high degree of um, of, uh, of uncertainty and make sure that, at least so far, they've been relatively careful. Um, the real question now, though, beyond the military capability, is the role of the United States. And will the United States come to the defense of Taiwan in a crisis? Uh, well, that, that teases the second quick answer question, and this could really be a yes or no. Uh, there is, there's sort of an assumption that the United States would support Taiwan in such a conflict. Is that true? It's, it's un. It's the United States has always been ambiguous. I think the United States could. I think there's a good chance that we would, but we have no treaty commitments. It would be up to the American president when the time comes. That's a good point. We are not allies in a formal sense with Taiwan. Correct. I, I guess just sort of playing devil's advocate here. I mean, there just there does seem to be an assumption. The assumption is that the United States would support Taiwan. In such a conflict, am I? Would you would you say that I'm correct in that assessment? I, I think most folks who look at this outside of government assume it, assume the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense because it's a democracy, because it's small and it's being bullied by this larger power, um, but also because of the geopolitical implications of this. That if China is able to uh, come to uh, unify by force, unify Taiwan by force then it could be seen as a jumping off point for China to establish itself as the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific, which would be a tremendous challenge, not only for the United States, but for all of our allies, including Japan, uh, Korea, and Australia. So so it's kind of like the old domino theory. Um, it's not the domino theory in that I don't, there is no fear that, you know, after Taiwan, then the Philippines, and then Japan, it's, it's not... That it's the idea that if China is able to, to um, take Taiwan, then from a political standpoint, um, it's seen as a victory of China's interests over those of the United States, of a authoritarian regime over a democracy. Um, but also, just looking at the geography, it would let it would give China the ability to cut Japan off from the rest of the world, uh, which they haven't experienced since the end of the war. Um, similarly to South Korea, they'd be able to cut Korea off. Um, and they'd be able to project power directly into the Pacific Ocean. Um, and so that, from a geopolitical point of view, instead of a uh, seeing the Pacific Ocean as a uh, venue for commerce, for trade, uh, and the projection of American geopolitical power, uh, from the point of view of the United States, it could become an avenue of 
of threat, of instability, and of Chinese power. And that is a huge geopolitical challenge that most Americans would prefer to not see happen. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to do with this is sort of explain the assumption. Why is a is a first question. And two, at what cost? I mean, if there were some sort of conflict, I mean, what would that entail for the United States to push back on a military that has been expanding? It's been expanding and it's been expanding in a way that's tailored to fight the United States on a Taiwan scenario. China doesn't have global responsibilities where they have to fight any uh, potential adversary in any place in the world. They've been focusing for decades on one scenario primarily and one adversary primarily, and that's a Taiwan contingency um, potentially against Taiwan and the United States. And so they've developed tailored capabilities to strike us. Mm. So if you look at the number of Americans that we've sadly lost over decades of fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and you can imagine it's be possible in a conflict with China losing the same number of people in the first week, um, in which American aircraft carriers potentially are destroyed and sunk, um, thousands of American servicemen killed, and um, the and China is of course a nuclear power, and then you get back into considerations of nuclear deterrence um, and those sorts of issues. So it's a very high stakes game, and this is why um, so many administrations, uh, the Obama administration, uh, the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, have prioritized the Indo-Pacific um, and China as uh, the top priority in its foreign affairs because it's such a dramatic challenge, and Taiwan is certainly one of the key pieces of that. So it is not an inconsequential decision. It's not just a, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is huge. It has the potential to be huge. And I think your point is well made that China's been preparing for this. This is, this is a contingency that they think about and plan for. You've been in the Pentagon, and you've been in this Asia space for quite a while. We've tried the shift to the Pacific. What do you think of the United States' planning on this? I understand we have all these other commitments around the world, but it's not like we're deaf to this possible contingency as well. So where, from the American planning side, how do you feel about what we're doing? I think we're making progress. Um, when the Obama administration announced the shift, uh, the, the pivot to the Indo-Pacific, the strategic rebalancing, whatever you want to call it, I think there was a general recognition that this was the project of multiple administrations. And each administration has been trying to conduct this shift. And right now, I think the Pentagon is making really good decisions about um, the investments it's making, about military posture. Um, you know, there's been other, I think, good decisions being made about buttressing our alliances across the Indo-Pacific, engaging with our allies around the world on issues related to China. Uh, but we still have a long ways to go. Um, the the key piece that I think has been uh, missing so far, ironically, is not in the military sphere. It's been in trade. Um, the trade investment mechanisms that are driving the Indo-Pacific, uh, the RCEP and the CPTPP, um, the United States isn't a part of either of them. Um, and there is very little expectation that we will be a part of them. Um, and that means we are outside of the discussion looking in on um, the on a critical issue that's driving the Indo-Pacific, which is business uh, and trade and investment. And so when you hear about China's Belt and Road Initiative um, and the tremendous economic strength that they have, the large economic ties they have with these countries, we are keeping ourselves on the sidelines 
And that limits our ability to have political influence. Um, it limits um, our ability to uh, compete with the Chinese more broadly. Um, and I think it's emblematic of the broad political challenges that we have at home and how they impact our ability to compete with the Chinese in the Indo-Pacific. And I will direct our listeners' attention to a very early episode that we did on the relationship with some of those uh, Pacific Island nations, which that's a, an interesting one to go back to and probably still relevant uh, of where some of these Pacific Islands would fall in, in such a conflict. So Definitely. Fascinating discussion. Always happy to talk to you, Abe. And I appreciate you helping us to, to ground truth on some of this and to talk about some of the assumptions that I think people make. Uh, it's good to explain these every once in a while, not just to assume that everybody knows them. Um, so thank you, Abe. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. 